There is a story that um, one day after the baptism of uh, Johnny's baby brother, uh, Johnny was in the car driving home from church, and he just started sobbing. And uh, his father in the front seat is trying to figure out what's wrong. He says, Johnny, what are you upset about? Johnny won't respond. He asks him a second time. Johnny says nothing. He asks him a third time, Johnny, what's wrong? And finally, Johnny, through his tears, says, the pastor said he wanted us brought up in a Christian home, but I want to stay with you guys. Uh, it's significant for us to recognize that Jesus is not in a Christian home. Jesus is not in a home filled with biological family who are on board with His ministry. Oh, we don't know a lot about the story of Joseph's earthly father. I'm sorry, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. Most people assume He passed away at this point since we don't get any stories of Him during Jesus' ministry. Now, of course, we know that Mary knows who Jesus is, um, but Mary doesn't acquit herself super well in this story. And Jesus' brothers um, are, are pretty much um, opposed to what He's doing. In fact, we're told in our passage that Jesus uh, is eating with the disciples and His family hears it, and they go out to restrain Him, to seize Him. It's the same idea that you know, the temple guards do in the Garden of Gethsemane. They want to capture Jesus because everybody is saying He's out of His mind. Um, by the way, um, this idea of being out of His mind uh, is more or less how the ancient world thought about what it meant to be possessed by a demon. So when the scribes say He has an unclean spirit, what they are saying and what His family is hearing said about Him and acting upon are not very different. Two groups come together in this story to silence Jesus, His family, and the scribes from Jerusalem. Uh, and in the midst of it, uh, I think this is fundamentally a story about what it means to be Jesus' family. Um, but we're not going to get that unless we get this middle story about the scribes. So, uh, I want to suggest really simply this morning that to understand what it means to be the family of Jesus means we have to understand what kind of Savior Jesus came to be. To understand what it means to be the family of Jesus means we have to understand what kind of Savior Jesus came to be. So, uh, in a nutshell, uh, Jesus came to be a new Moses. Jesus came to be a new Moses. Jesus came to be the sort of Savior who plunders a people from the power of evil, right? This is what Moses does in the Old Testament. It's what Jesus came to do in the New Testament. Jesus came to be a, a God who plunders a people from the power of evil. Yesterday we had um, this uh, incredible event put on by our anti-trafficking team. Uh, it was well attended here, and then we had, I think, six other churches around the state that, that streamed it as satellite locations for our event, which was awesome. Uh, we did some training for our members and visitors, and then we also did training at gas stations and hotels so that those folks could recognize early warning signs of human trafficking. Uh, and as we were doing some of that training, there were a few things um, that really stood out to me. 
Uh, there's, a, there's a line from Damascus Road, one of the ministries we work with. Um, they say that people were made to be loved and things were made to be used. So much of the suffering in our world because, comes because we love things and use people. I've been coming back to that a lot, um, that so much of the suffering in our world comes because we love things and use people. One of the stories that was told yesterday was told by the um, anti-human trafficking staff member at the women's community here in Wausau about uh, a a young woman that she knew personally. Um, This was a 15-year-old girl who had been required to leave her home, and she moved in with her grandmother. Uh, And her grandmother got her addicted to methamphetamines, uh, and then her grandmother connected her to a 22, 23-year-old man and allowed that man to come into their house and sleep with her. And then that man began to take her around the greater Wisconsin area and traffic her. And in those moments when she wondered whether this was what was supposed to happen to 15-year-old girls. She would come home and talk to her grandmother, who was the person she respected the most in the world, and her grandmother would say, yes, honey, it's okay, because he loves you and he's going to marry you one day. We've got to talk about a theological concept this morning. We're going to talk about something that Gregory Boyd calls a warfare worldview. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, Gregory Boyd uh, has a number of books, one of those um, called God at War, where he talks about this concept of what he calls resignation versus revolt. He says, in a nutshell, that um, around the time of St. Augustine in the 400s AD, we began to think differently about the problem of evil in the Christian church. Um, He says that at that time, we formed this assumption that a mysterious, loving, sovereign, divine plan lies behind even evil events in our world, and that that assumption, that worldview encourages an approach to evil that defines it as an intellectual problem to be solved rather than a spiritual opponent to be overcome. We, We think this way a lot in the church today. Don't we think, boy, if we could just understand why God let this happen, if we could just wrap our minds around what God's good plan is. We know that God has a plan. We just don't understand it. If we could, it would be fine. Everything would make sense. Gregory Boyd says um, that the biblical authors don't have this philosophy. He says the biblical authors have what he calls a warfare worldview. He says, within a warfare worldview, particular evils are their own ultimate explanation. They flow from the wills of creatures. Hence, there need be no higher good divine reason for their occurring. Thus, evil must be understood as being what God is unequivocally against, and thus what God's people must also be unequivocally against. Whereas our modern assumption of sovereignty encourages a theology of resignation, a theology rooted in a warfare worldview inspires and requires a theology of revolt, revolt against all that God revolts against. 
The God of the Bible is not ambivalent to evil. The God of the Bible isn't hoping that one day we will see and hear stories of 15-year-old girls trafficked and think, boy, one day I hope that will get explained away. The God of the Bible is a God who fights. The God of the Bible is a God who hates evil and is willing to do whatever it takes to rescue people from it. That's the story of the Exodus. That's the story of Moses and Pharaoh where God sends Moses into the land of the strongest man in the world and says, you're going to tie him up and you're going to plunder the thing that he has used, but I have loved my people and you're going to bring them out. You're going to bring captives out of his house. The Bible says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And when God sees evil, his hope is not that we will understand it. His hope is that we will overcome it. Now, the Old Testament offers us physical metaphors for the spiritual realities of the New Testament. The Old Testament offers us physical metaphors for the spiritual realities of the New Testament. So Jesus says, here, I want you to understand what kind of Messiah I have come to be. I am a Messiah like Moses. I have come to tie up the strong man. Are you so foolish as to think that my power comes from demons? If that was the case, Satan would already have lost. No, I am a power greater than Satan, and I have come because this world is filled with people who are enslaved to Him. Perhaps not always in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, we have a world of people enslaved to the selfishness and the sin and the darkness and the violence that He loves and dwells on. But one who is stronger than Satan has come. Jesus is a warrior. Jesus is His name. And as He tied up Pharaoh in the Exodus, so He ties up Satan today. Isaiah 49, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty will be taken and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. To stand in Jesus' way then, whether you are scribes, or religious leaders, or biological family, is to oppose that work of God. The scribes literally assert that Jesus is demonic. His family just suggests perhaps He's crazy. And in all of them, Jesus says, you are in so much danger. Because when you ascribe the inbreaking, demon-destroying, salvation-bringing power of the Holy Spirit to Satan, if you can't see the presence of God in Jesus, if you deliberately scorn the power and the forgiveness of God, who then is left who can set you free? Jesus says, you have to pick a side today. I'm not interested in you understanding why bad things happen. I'm interested in you picking a side. I have come to fight back against the powers of darkness, and I expect you to be on my team. Jesus is a warrior. Jesus is His name. By the way, this isn't done with the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. He's not done with His family. 
Uh, this whole unforgivable sin throws us off because um, it's only unforgivable if you never quit doing it, right? But one day, there's a guy named Nicodemus and a guy named Josephus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and a guy named Saul that we come to know as Paul, who are all of the Pharisees' camp who come to believe in Jesus and become part of His family. One day, James, the brother of Jesus, and Jude, the brother of Jesus, um, after the resurrection of Christ, come to believe in Jesus, and they um, become leaders in the church. They become authors of Scripture. Jesus isn't done with them yet, but He says, I need you to pick a side. So, if this is the kind of Savior Jesus came to be, if Jesus came to be a Savior like a Moses, a Savior who ties up the strong man of evil and plunders a people from captivity to freedom, then we as the family of Jesus are expected to be like that new Israel. We are expected to be a people who identify around our rescuer. The end of this passage is a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, I know I said, I tried to to cue you up here to think that Jesus was right, but it's a little uncomfortable when Mary and James and Jude and maybe some of the other brothers and maybe his sister are uh, out there and Jesus says, yeah, I can't even leave the room to go see them because they're not even my family. You guys are my family. It's a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation. Uh, If it's uncomfortable for you, it would have been vastly more uncomfortable for Jesus' listeners. In the ancient world, family is your entire identity. People didn't move away from their families. Family was who you are, and uh, your career and your faith and your whole life were rooted in your biological connections to your mother and brothers and sisters and father. What Jesus is saying here is radical. Jesus is saying that what you think of as the most important and most central aspect of your identity is less important than He is, less important than the work of salvation He has done in your life, less important than the mission to which He calls you. Jesus is pro-family, but some things are even bigger than family. Shakespeare's most famous uh, history is probably Henry V, Uh, and in Henry V, um, probably the most famous speech that Henry gives is on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt. And uh, in this speech, he's speaking to um, his commanders about the battle that is to come. It happens to fall on uh, the Feast of Crispian, which is a a Christian holiday um, the, the following day. And I want to read you a little bit of Henry's speech He says, Proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put in his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He shall, live, he shall that live this day and see old age yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispian's day. 
old men forget. Yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap. While any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. One of the other lines from our Damascus Road partners is, every day we wake up in a battle. Some days we inflict heavy losses against our enemy. Some days we suffer heavy losses. If you don't know or care about the battle, then by default, you are losing. Jesus invites us to be part of a battle. He is a warrior. He has come to rescue us from sin and from darkness. He asks us to be part of a band of sisters and brothers who take up spiritual arms against our oppressor, who trust in His power and cooperate with Him, who sometimes win and sometimes lose, but know the ultimate outcome of the war is never in doubt. We are called to be people who are plundered from slavery to plunder others. One of my heroes is a lady named Harriet Tubman. I got a picture of Mrs. Tubman, if you don't mind putting that up. I think everybody knows the name Harriet Tubman. I don't know if we all know the story. Uh, Harriet Tubman was a slave born on the eastern shore of Maryland and um, had horrific experiences as a slave. Uh, Not sure when she came to faith in Jesus, but she was a a devout Christian. She had um, a traumatic brain injury um, as a slave that plagued her the rest of her life when she was hit by a two-pound weight in the skull. Um, Somehow, she got connected to the Underground Railroad, which was, of course, not literally a railroad, but a network of abolitionists rescuing slaves and bringing them to the north to the free states. Uh, And she um, joined in and was rescued and was taken 100 miles north to Philadelphia, where she became a free woman. But she was not content to live there. And so, Um, Harriet Tubman became one of the most famous conductors of the Underground Railroad. She led at least 13 different missions into slave states to rescue enslaved persons and bring them up to the north. She rescued more than 70 people. Not a single person on any of her missions was ever captured or recaptured. Uh, She had a nickname. Anybody know what her nickname was? Moses. Yeah. Moses. When the war started… Uh, Harriet Tubman joined the Union Army. She was a slave, uh, sorry, she was a cook, and uh, she was a nurse, and she was a spy. Uh, And so she spied behind enemy lines, and uh, at one point, um, she led a team of 300 
African-American soldiers to raid a plantation in South Carolina during the Civil War. Um, it was the first time a woman in American history had ever led a military operation. They ransacked the plantation, they set fire to the Confederate buildings, and they brought more than 700 enslaved persons to freedom. She was like a Moses. She was like a Jesus. This is what it means to be the brothers and sisters and mother of Christ. This is what it means to be His family. Jesus plundered us from the enemy, and now He wants us to plunder others. We are united because we are committed to God's will over our own. We're united because we see not resignation but resistance and revolt as God's response to evil. We are a plundered people rescuing physical slaves and spiritual slaves who feed the bellies of the hungry and the spirits of the lonely. We are called to be different. We are called to follow Jesus and prize Him above all others and all other identities. We are called to be a new family. We are called to be a band of brothers and sisters. We are called to pick a side. That's the kind of Savior Jesus is. That's the kind of people Jesus wants to follow Him. He simply says, pick a side. And if you pick the side of selfishness and darkness and sin, if you pick a side of self-indulgence and uh, a world where your life is about you and what you can get, um, then He will let you take your passport and put money in your purse and travel home. But if you pick His side, then you get to be part of the story that a good man teaches his son and a good woman teaches her daughter from this day to the literal ending of the world. In it, we shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of sisters and brothers. Thanks be to God. Amen.